So let's turn today in the Word of God to uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 66, and we'll read through uh, verse 25. What we've been doing this uh, March and into April is looking at the trial and triumph of Jesus, the suffering experience, and then the glory that he experienced following his death and burial. So today we're looking at Jesus condemned, Jesus on trial, uh, literally before the courts of this world. And so let's listen to God's holy word beginning at Luke chapter 22 and verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly arose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judah by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him performed some form a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, and I have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. With loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. O Lord, you are light, and there is in you there is no darkness at all. And yet, O Lord, we know there is darkness in our hearts. We have need of learning in general, but also we have corruption, which sends our hearts and minds in the wrong direction. So, Lord, shine in our hearts to help us to see what is in your word. Speak to us, O Lord, and with the same spirit by which you've inspired this word to be exactly what you wanted it to be, 
We pray, O oh Lord, to say exactly what you want to say to each person who is here today. So bless the preaching and the hearing of your word, that your name might be glorified and honored, and that your people might be edified and encouraged in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, today we continue to think about, uh, in each of our lives, the situation we're facing globally where we have a sort of imperial power that has invaded a smaller, perhaps weaker neighbor, threatening to overtake them. And we talk, of course, about Russia and Ukraine. One thing that that struck me this week as I was preparing for this sermon (laughs) was that if you go back to the message of the prophets in in the Old Testament, you understand that that is the context of most of their prophecies. There's a big imperial power like Assyria or Babylon or Persia that is threatening its smaller neighbors, including Judah and Israel. And one of the messages of the prophets is that God is going to come and judge the earth and that this sort of invasion is not going to go on forever, right? He is going to do something about it. But another side of this prophecy is the question of that, that the prophets pose is that when God comes in judgment, the question is not just will Assyria or Babylon or Russia survive, but will anyone survive? The prophet Isaiah was speaking in such a context in which Assyria was threatening his homeland, a great imperial power. And of course, the Lord is promising that eventually they're going to pay for what they've done. But Isaiah recognizes his own sinfulness. And he's given a vision of the Lord in all his holiness. And the question, he, the thing that he responds and says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. How can I survive the judgment of God? And that really is a question that all of our consciences impress upon us. Sometimes we ignore it. Sometimes we set it aside. But the fact is, our conscience bears witness that each one of us is going to have to give an account to God with whether we've done all that He asked and whether we become what He's called us to become. And each one of us knows in our heart of hearts that we have not done what he asked, that we have not become what he has called us to become, that all, every one of us will be declared guilty, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the question, in light of that fact, is how can I survive the judgment of God? And that is the question to which our text today gives us the answer, how we survive the judgment of God. So that's what we want to see. And it comes in the context of Jesus on trial. And let me just warn you, it's slightly complicated. So hopefully I can unpack it and make it clear by God's grace. But hopefully by the end, the bottom line will be very clear. So we're going to see Jesus before the priests of his people. Then we'll look at Jesus before Pilate and Herod. And then Jesus justified and condemned. 
So first, let's look at Jesus before the priests of his people, because that's where this begins. Jesus was arrested, not by the Roman authorities, but by the the priests of his priests and leaders of his people, who had mostly religious authority, but some civil authority. They had their police, they had their soldiers, and these are the ones that had arrested Jesus. And Jesus, having been arrested, was now going to be judged and put on trial. And he was put on trial before what is called here the Council of the Elders, or you may have heard it called the Sanhedrin, which in in essence was sort of the leading body of rulers of the people of Israel. And so he is going to stand before before them and be put on trial. Now, as you think about this and what Jesus is going to experience, I want to ask you, do you like to be judged? Do you like to be standing there and have people looking at you and evaluating what you are doing and judging it and saying that's good or that's bad? Well, I know for a fact that people do not like to be judged. And in point of fact, that is a lot of our responses in fighting with one another is the judgments that we make about each other and our fear of the judgments that people have. Now, when people come into church, a lot of times, they feel judged. A lot of people say that. I don't want to go to church. I feel judged by everybody. And sometimes that's true. But I don't know if you've ever experienced, and I hope that you have had a lot of experience with this, But uh, if you go before a court of law and before a civil judge, it's judgment on a whole different level. It's serious. I I have had a couple opportunities. I've committed quite a few crimes for which I've been arrested. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, No, but I have had some some things where I've visited people there, and I've, I've dealt with just a few minor traffic incidents, you know, trying to get that plea bargain down or whatever. And it's interesting to observe what goes on there. And you see, I, just, I can see the judge there in Michigan speaking to one person in front of me. You should not have done that. You know, it's just like really, really stern. I was like, oh boy, what is gonna, what's he going to say to me? And um, this is judgment. This is the sort of thing that Jesus is facing. But, you know, here, here in America, thanks be to God, we have, we have a relatively just system. Relatively just, not perfect. But here we have people who who are totally (laughs) putting their hands on the weights to make sure that Jesus is condemned, right? They're not interested in in truly a fair trial. And it's it's kind of interesting. You can read about the rules they used and how they violated it here, and that's some some interest, but I'm not going to go into that. Other than to say that they're supposed to have, if they were to condemn someone to death, they were supposed to have two meetings. And it seems likely that the book of Matthew records the first meeting of the Council of Elders, and then the book of Luke records the second meeting, and that's what we're talking about, which might explain why this one is so clipped. And so we have Jesus there in court, and they ask him a question, and, or give them him a demand. If you are the Messiah, tell us. And that's the, and that's the question. And indeed, it's a good question to ask of Jesus. Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one of God that's come to save the world? That is a good question to ask. But of course, 
they don't have, they're not asking them this because they really want to know. They're asking this in order to trap him. And Jesus knows that, that as he looks at this, there is a somewhat of a problem. Because the Jews had, you might say, too low of a view of the Messiah. They thought of him mostly in political terms. Now, sometimes Christians today can think of Jesus in the opposite way, as if he's simply spiritual and has nothing to do with every area of life, and especially politics. That's also an error. But Jesus was dealing with people who tended to reduce what the Messiah was doing to the political. And so he didn't want to simply say yes, that he is the Messiah, because it would just confirm them what they were saying. On the other hand, he couldn't say no, because he was actually the Messiah. So here's how he responds. First of all, he says, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. And he had already dealt with this. You can go back to Luke 20 and see his discussion. And he already said, asked them questions that they didn't want to answer about this. So he's, he's saying, so what does he do? Well, what he does is try to say, to point them to the fact that the Messiah is much more exalted than they ever thought. He's trying to show them that, to point them back to the prophets and the exalted conception of the Messiah that we find there. Here's what he says. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And this, this concept here, and again he says earlier, coming in the clouds of glory, seems likely taken from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which we read as our call to worship. It says, In my vision, Daniel said, At night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's how he wants them to think of his claim. And they got it. And what they saw this was to say that in essence he was equal with God. And as we read from the other accounts, they saw him as committing blasphemy. And so they said, are you then the son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Which was a way of just saying yes. Then they said to him, why do we need any more testimony? We heard it from his own lips. They had tried to trap him before. Now they had him. They have him for blasphemy. And they want him to be put to death. They feel like they have the evidence they were seeking out. There's only one problem. They had no authority to sentence anyone to death. Because remember, they're not really the civil authority of the nation. The civil authority of the nation is Rome. And so the, the representative of Rome was the governor of Judea named Pontius Pilate. And that's what we turn to consider now is Jesus before Pilate and Herod because he ends up going before both. Now we confessed earlier today the Apostles' Creed. One, of the, one thing that continually strikes me about the Apostles' Creed is that we have in the Apostles' Creed the mention of a minor Roman governor that Christians for the past 2,000 years have mentioned, he put his name on their lips as part of their confession in the triune God. The Apostles' Creed is ancient. And it's almost as if we were to say, from now on, whenever we confess that confess to the triune God, we want to make sure we mention in there Governor Bill Lee, the governor of Tennessee. 
Now, to see how obscure this is, let me ask you, how many other Roman governors can you name? I can, I can do about 75. How about you? No, I'm just kidding. Maybe a couple I could come up with. But, but probably a lot of us, maybe one or two, Quirinius. Anybody remember Quirinius? Because Luke chapter 2 got that. But it, it, it's not something we've studied a lot, most of us. Maybe we have some experts in Roman history here. Um, if, if there are, I'd love to talk with you about it. But it's just, how many, how many American governors can you name from the 18th century? I mean, it's just not the sort of thing we generally keep in mind. Maybe the presidents, we can name a few of those. But a governor, it's kind of the same position. And yet, every Christian <laughs> throughout the ages almost has said Pontius Pilate is part of their confession of the triune God. So Pontius Pilate gets an amazing place. He's now famous in history, or rather infamous, we might say. So this is the one he's going before. So we're going to talk about what happens there. Now, of course, they're going to go before Pontius Pilate, and they're going to say, if they went to him and said, you know, this man blasphemes our God, Pontius Pilate's going to be like, and? (laughs) He's not going to care. So... (laughs) So what are they going to say? Look at verse 2. We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Now this is really rich because these are not people who are like strongly pro-Roman. They're not like, we love paying taxes to Caesar and we are in total support of him and this guy's against him. No, they themselves would have been happy to be rid of the Roman government. And so they accuse him of opposing the Roman government as the crime. Pilate, though, then responds to him, speaks to him and says, are you the king of the Jews? And he responds with that affirmative statement, you have said so. And, and Pilate then goes out, and look at verse 4. And he says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. So this is one crucial thing. We're going to see it several times here. Jesus was cleared by the civil authorities. He's saying there is no reason why this man should suffer a penalty. I find no basis for it. And and from that moment on, he was looking for a way to release Jesus. Now, why would he want to do that? Possibly because he knew that a lot of people did actually like Jesus and he might have feared what would happen if he did condemn him to death. And so that's one possible way. I don't think it's completely altruistic as if if he's just interested in justice, which what happens afterward will show us. Now here's what the chief priests respond. Verse 5. Well, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. And all of a sudden, Pilate sees, aha, I know a way out of this. Because he's not over Galilee. One of the sons of the Herod who killed the babies in, 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 uh, in Luke chapter 2, or Matthew chapter 2, he's now ruling over, over Galilee. And so, in essence, he says, no, he's under Herod's jurisdiction. Now he's like, okay, you go over to Herod. Herod happened to be in Jerusalem even though that wasn't part of his jurisdiction. So he sends him over to Herod. Herod is really excited. 
because he'd been wanting to see Jesus. He was hoping Jesus would perform some sign or trick in front of him. He thought it'd be really cool. And so Herod's all excited about this. So the priests go before him and listen to what happens there. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. So Herod's asking him questions. Jesus is saying nothing. And then the priests are there just like bombarding him with accusations, trying to get Herod to act. And so Herod, Jesus says nothing. So he says, I'm not sure what to do. So they just start making fun of him. They put an elegant robe on them, on him, which later they will cast lots for. And he sends him back to Pilate. And ironically, um, Herod and Pilate become friends through this. That before that, they had been enemies. Now, I want you to see, though, this is now the fifth time that Jesus is going to stand in judgment before a civil authority. Now, let's get to the heart of the matter. This is the third point. Jesus justified and condemned. Some of this is complicated, but that's the bottom line. So, one, of the key, one key word you need to, to learn as you study theology and as you grow in your Christian faith is the word to justify. It's the opposite of to condemn. It means to clear, to acquit, to declare righteous. Whereas condemn means to, to declare guilty, to, to say that someone has committed the crime. And what we see here is that after, after Jesus comes back, Pilate justifies Jesus. He declares him righteous. Look at what he says in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 23. You brought me this man who was one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. That is the pronouncement of the Roman authorities. He is in the clear. He's justified. He has done nothing deserving of death. That is the sentence of the judgment of the judge who's put in charge. Now, Pilate has one more card up his sleeve. He had a tradition. Again, remember, this is the Passover. At the Passover, he would release a prisoner to them. And so he says, how about I just release Jesus to you? And, of course, they wanted absolutely nothing to do with that. The whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, Jesus, release Barabbas to us. Now, think of the irony of this. Here's what it says about Barabbas. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. So, they hand Jesus over, claiming that he opposes the Roman government, which he, he hadn't. And then they say, release to us a man who actually had opposed the Roman government, who had co committed an insurrection, sought to, to rise up and throw overthrow the government, and committed murder in the process. This is the man they want released. You see what a farce this is. So... Pilate, though, is not going to give up. 
Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And for the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished and release him. And so, but then they kept shouting and shouting and shouting, crucify him, crucify him, away with him. And then it notes, so Pilate decided to grant their demand. The crowd shouted, Pilate listened, and he condemned the one he had already justified. The one he said should not be condemned, he condemned. It's an amazing thing. On the one hand, he says that he is innocent, and on the other hand, he says that he is now guilty and should be condemned. But the interesting thing about this is that the sentence of Pilate reflects the sentence of heaven. Because the sentence of heaven said, this man is innocent, but he will be declared guilty. He is condemned, but he will be justified. Or he is justified, but he will be condemned. The decree of heaven was that the innocent Jesus should suffer. Now, in the case of Pilate, it was a total miscarriage of justice. But in the case of heaven, it was just. Why? Not because Jesus deserved death on the basis of what he has done, but because he was standing there as our representative, as the representative of sinful humanity, being sentenced to death not for his own sins, but for ours. He is innocent, but he is condemned because he takes our condemnation upon himself. That is why he is handed over. And so the judgment of Pilate reflects with different intention the judgment of heaven. That is what is happening here. It was, as the Heidelberg Catechism said, the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. But then what happens to us? Well, this is powerfully depicted for us in verse 25. Listen to what happens. Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. The one who was truly guilty goes free. The one who is innocent gets condemned. And that, my friends, is the whole gospel right there. Jesus condemned, we go free. Jesus condemned, we are justified. He is sentenced to death, and we are put in the clear. We are justified because he was condemned. He was condemned, 
so that we might never be condemned. He was sentenced to death so that our sentence of death might be suspended and reversed. He was not declared righteous so that we might be declared perfectly righteous before the throne of God. That's the meaning of what is happening here. So the key question to ask for each one of us is this. Is he your substitute? Is he your representative? When God calls you to account before, you, before his throne, will you stand there on your own with all your own actions? Or will you say, Jesus, you stand in my place. You be my representative. You go between me and the Father with your condemnation and with your righteousness. The one leads to eternal punishment. The other leads to eternal life. That is the key question that we all have to reckon with. And the amazing truth for those who have said Jesus is my substitute, who have accepted God's offer to have him in our place, is that we will never be condemned. We will only be justified before the throne of God. And we can have that confidence. Even if we fall into sins that grieve our hearts. Now nothing we do is perfect in this life. Everything is tainted by sin. But there's sometimes where we do things or leave undone things that really grieve our hearts and make us see our guilt. And I remember not too long ago, I had done one of those things. Yes, pastors do sin. So pastors do sin. I've sinned. And what I do even as a pastor is still has the corruption of sin. And so I, I called my friend and I just said, I do not think this was right. You know, and I'm just struggling with that. And he said to me, he said, my friend said to me, he says, you are forgiven of your sin. God will not bring it up again. It's over. That's the sentence of heaven. He was declaring the sentence of heaven for all who repent and believe in Jesus. So my friends, we have the answer to the question that is the most important one that we can ask. How can a sinful man survive the judgment of God? And the answer is because Jesus was judged and condemned in our place so that we might be declared righteous and survive the severe judgment of God. We have an answer. We may struggle with feeling judged by others, whether in the present or in the past. But in the court of heaven, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are declared perfectly righteous because Jesus was handed over, because he was condemned, and because he's risen again. And so as we go to the judgment seat of God, we will not experience a severe judge, but instead we will experience the welcome of the Father who welcomes us as a brother of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Let's pray. Well, Father, I pray today that as we consider our standing before God, that each one of us here would take it seriously. And if there's any who do not know you and who have not accepted that substitute, that they would do so today. And for those who have done so, that they would hear once again the the sentence of heaven that we are declared righteous through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And so now we have an opportunity to confirm what we have heard, to be reminded of it again through the Lord's Supper. Let me read um, to you Luke 22, verses 17 through 20, where Jesus told us to participate in the Supper. After taking the cup, one of the cups of the Passover feast, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so, if you, are, if you have accepted Jesus as your substitute, then you are called today to confirm your faith, to hear once again the sentence of heaven, that you are forgiven because of what Jesus has, has done, and to see hear it, not only hear it, but to taste it, to smell it, to touch it through the Lord's Supper. That is the message. So as we approach the table today, keep in mind all the things that we've studied. Let's remember these things the Lord has experienced before us because they are the central facts of our Christian life. And this supper recalls us to, to our attention, the struggles, the suffering, the agony that our Lord suffered, the, the arrest, the trial, the death, the crucifixion of Christ. But it also reminds us that he is risen and, and sitting at the right hand of the Father, and that he will come again with glory to take all those who are his to be with him, to experience glory forever. And so we do this until he comes, recognizing that the day is coming when we'll no longer need the elements to remind us of our Lord, for we will see him face to face. So let's pray and ask the Lord's help towards that end. Merciful God and Father, whose grace abounds beyond all our sins, we pray that in this supper in which we commemorate the death of your dear Son, you will so work in our hearts that we may yield ourselves ever more fully to Jesus Christ, May our contrite hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit be nourished and refreshed with his body and blood, with him, true God and man, the only heavenly bread, so that we may no longer live live in our sins, but he in us and we in him. Answer us, O God and merciful Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit belong all praise and adoration and honor now and forevermore. Amen. So to partake of the supper, let me give a little bit of instruction. First of all, um, we're using these packets for the juice. You probably received one. You came in. If you don't have one, um, if you just raise your hand and Mr. Mike, one of our elders, will come around and uh, give, you, give you one of those packets for the juice. If you want to use the bread that's in there, you're welcome to. But we will also be passing around the bread, and you can, and you can use that. And so uh, with that, I'll invite our elders, if you would, to come forward. And uh, we will distribute the, the bread. And so I just ask that you hold that 
bread, meditate on what the Lord has done for you. And then once it's passed out, we'll partake of the bread and the juice together. So let's take the bread. Remember that the Lord had handed it out, and he took bread, he gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. It represents a new relationship where our sins are forgiven, where we're counted as righteous and expecting glory. So take it, drink, remember and believe that the blood of Jesus shed for you. Let's pray. O merciful God and Father, we thank you with all our hearts that in your boundless grace you have given us your only begotten Son as a mediator and a sacrifice for our sins and as our food and drink unto life eternal. We thank you too for giving us the true faith through which we can partake of your benefits. And since your Son, Jesus Christ, ordained the Holy Supper to strengthen our faith, we pray through your Holy Spirit this Supper may increase our faith
and enrich our fellowship with Christ. May you also use this proclamation of our Lord's death and resurrection to bring others into this blessed fellowship so that all your children may be gathered in to share with us the joy of your salvation. Hear us, Heavenly Father, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, um, we're going to do something a little bit different here. Um, I'll go ahead and ask uh, our worship band to come, come up. So, and kids, I want you to, to remain through this song and through the offering before you go off to Children's Church. When this song's over, you can go on over. So, what we're going to do right now, we are going to take up our offering right now. And uh, the first offering is for our general fund. And then we'll have a second offering for our, for our benevolence fund. Our benevolence fund goes to help people um, all over the world, actually, um, who we find who have needs for, uh, to help them fill gaps with rent, diapers, food, whatever the case may be. And, um, and, they, and uh, so all that goes to them. So that's the second offering. First offering is for our general fund. And so, uh, and so um, just hang on for a second until they start, then you can go ahead. Um, now, one thing, in, um, in the book of Numbers, God said, talked about the priests of the Old Testament who were to show forth what Jesus was going to do. And once a year, they would go into the holy of holy place, the holiest place in the temple, and they make a sacrifice. And this was for the forgiveness of the sins of people. It was pointing forward to what Jesus was going to do. It was calling them to look forward to the Christ who was to come. But when they came out of the temple, you know what they did? They declared a blessing. They declared a blessing on people. No more curse, only blessing. Only blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. That comes from Numbers chapter 6 that we, that we use. And so um, as we remember this in this time and particularly on this day where we have the Lord's Supper, the Christ sacrifice is complete. And uh, I want you to hear the blessing of the Lord, the blessing of our high priest Jesus. And this is especially appropriate because we're going to see in Luke chapter 24. You know, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, you know what he did? He raised his hands like the Aaronic priests did, and he declared a blessing on his people. So hear the blessing of Jesus as our group sings today. Please remain seated during this song, uh, but as you feel led, you can join in, uh, join in with the singing if you, if you know the song.
before you and behind you and beside you and your family and your children and your children and your children may his presence go before you and behind you and beside you all around you and within you he is with you he is with you in the morning in the evening in your coming and your going in your weeping and rejoicing he is for you 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 Kids, you now can go on to uh, Children's Church. Um, as they go out, uh, will you put up that picture? Do you have the of the Bridgemont? It's not in there? Okay. So uh, go to Evergreen Church Forum. Look at the picture. So uh, I just wanted to say uh, I just wanted to say thanks to those who came out yesterday to work on Bridgemont. I know they appreciate it. Uh, we had uh, seven, seven kids and five men, I think, five or six. And uh, so it's, it's a good picture there. Of, of, the, of this group, and we basically, there was, there was trees that had fallen down, and we cleared that soccer field that's up there if you've been out to Bridgemont. So uh, it was a good day, a good day of service and a good time together, and thanks also for Miss Stacy for providing us a delicious meal afterwards, so we thank you for that. And uh, just want to remind you that, you know, that it's a lot of times people don't see this, um, but, you know, there's a lot of good things happening uh, just day in and day out that people of Evergreen are doing, that God is at work leading us to opportunities of service. And one of the things as we sat around the table, um, I realized one of the men there had done six or seven trips uh, in the past couple of years with Marty to, do, uh, to work with M&A Disaster Response, our disaster response team for our denomination. And then this week, another, another gentleman had gone down to Rome, Georgia to work at the warehouse and had spent two days... <laughs> Working hard there uh, to serve. So, you know, these sorts of things are happening. We do that individually, but then we have these service activities like we did at Bridgemont. Um, and, and, you know, it was hard for, for the kids to get up and get going, tell them we're going to go there, be there at 9 o'clock. At, uh, there we go. Uh, at 9 o'clock to, uh, to, to work at Bridgemont. But they came out there and we had a great time together. So that reminds us just as a kind of way of helping each other remember 
the sort of service we're supposed to do generally in each day of our lives to our neighbors, to our friends, and whatever opportunity the Lord gives us. Um, so, after the benediction, just encourage you to uh, greet one another. If you don't know someone, introduce yourself and uh, stay and have a time of fellowship because that's important too, to fellowship with God, to fellowship with one another. Um, remember, uh, this week, we have our Wednesday night services. We'll have the second of four that we're having, looking at Romans chapter 8 and the meaning of the cross for us and the Father and giving of the Son. That will be at 7 o'clock right here at the, at the River Plantation. Um, no, at the Sun Outdoors Conference Center. They've changed it. And so, uh, and so come back on Wednesday and enjoy time, time of fellowship. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll continue worshiping the Lord together. Um, for our benediction, though, I just thought it'd be appropriate uh, this time. Just We're going to sing a slightly shortened version of what we just sang. And, and uh, bless each other in the name of the Lord. So after that, you're dismissed. But let's conclude with this benediction. upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and your children and your children may his presence may his presence go before you and behind you and beside you all around you and within you he is with you he is with you in the morning in the evening in the coming you're going, you're weeping and rejoicing. He is with you, He is for 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 you. Just missed.